Hi, writers. Welcome to a new episode on the craft of writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. Here is a summary of the big dialogue techniques from last week. I'll mention these seven in one sentence each, then go on to some strong techniques, smaller things that'll sharpen our dialogue. Here are the major techniques from last week. First, have a lot of dialogue. Second, have the conversations be important. Three, argument is the most interesting dialogue. Four, use BC dialogue, not ABCD dialogue, which means cut to the chase in the conversation without the wind up or the wind down. Five, avoid small talk. Six, avoid as you know dialogue. And seven, our characters should sound differently from one another. Here are some smaller dialogue techniques. We can use dialogue to reveal our character. That is, to show rather than tell about the character. Uh, Few things reveal so much about a person in real life and in fiction as how they talk. A character who says, I don't know nothing about that gun, is a different person than the one who says, I dispute your insinuations about that weapon. A character who says, Yo, dog, what's up? I'm chilling with my homies. We're just bumming around. Is a different character than someone who says, Do you have plans for today? Maybe we can get the guys together. Dialogue can present evidence, which is to say, to show, to the reader about our character. Here's another technique. We should use said almost all the time. A dialogue tag is that part of a sentence that indicates who is speaking the dialogue. I love haunted houses, Chris said, where Chris said is a dialogue tag. Are you talking about the roller coaster at the Monroe Fair, Annie asked? where Annie asked is a dialogue tag. Almost every time our character speaks, said or asked should be the dialogue tag. The lion isn't behind the tree anymore, he said. I don't understand cricket, he said. There's a yellow cat on the porch, she said. He said, she said, grandma said, grandma asked. And with dialogue... Questions asked should be used as the dialogue tag almost all the time. Could it be the Smith's cat, her husband asked. Readers never tire of dialogue tags, he said or she said or Dennis said or Linda asked, because readers never even think about them. They're invisible. All that the reader realizes is that a character is speaking. The reader pays attention to the dialogue, not the verb he said or she asked. Often new writers want to avoid repeating words, and usually that's a good goal, but uh, it's a good goal to mix things up and be fresh in our word choice. But we needn't worry about invisible words such as said and asked when used in dialogue tags. When we try for another word as a substitute, it often comes across as trying too hard, uh, too long a look at the thesaurus. 
Once in a while, a substitute for said and asked is great, but most of the time, said and asked should be our dialogue tags. Here's another good technique. We shouldn't modify the dialogue tag with a verb. And this is what I mean. He said joyously. She replied tartly. He briskly said. She muttered painfully. He said somberly. She said prickly. She said distantly. She said chokingly. She said wryly. Wryly. I could go on and on. Uh, where said or asked is the verb and the dialogue tag modifier is probingly, as in she asked probingly. Isn't that a terrible phrase? Here's Elmore Leonard on the subject. Never use an adverb to modify the verb said, he admonished gravely. To use an adverb this way, or almost any way, is a mortal, mortal sin. The writer is now exposing himself in earnest, using a word that distracts and can interrupt the rhythm of the exchange. That's Elmore Leonard. Uh, among good writers, the use of dialogue tag modifiers is considered a laugher. It's a mark of amateurism. We should go out of our way to avoid them, Jim said gravely. Here's another good technique. We should use the word said as a dialogue tag and not words that don't mean to speak. Uh, we've been talking about a dialogue tag a modifier. Uh, a dialogue tag identifies who's speaking. He said, I dropped my phone, where he said is the dialogue tag. Uh, where are you going, she asked, where she asked is a dialogue tag. Uh, when, writers sometimes use a word for said that doesn't mean to speak. That roller coaster was fun, she breathed. Breathing means to draw air into and expel it from the lungs. It doesn't mean to speak. Beat it, he growled. Dogs growl because they can't speak. Growling doesn't mean to say words. Uh, We should avoid dialogue tags such as, I wonder where the key is, he mused. Mused means to think, not to speak. I wonder where the key is, she laughed. Laughed means to laugh, not to speak. Uh, Writers are often being metaphorical in the use of these words, but even so, in my mind, the use of such substitutes for said and asked is awkward. You'll occasionally see these words used as dialogue tags in published writing, but as the novelist Dean Kuntz says, quote, books full of inept dialogue tags get published all the time. Of course they do. Not all published writers are good writers. That's Dean Kuntz. Here's another uh, technique, one I really like. Don't always answer questions directly in our dialogue. In real-life conversations, most people try to answer your question and then explain or clarify or add something interesting. So the real-life conversation between Teresa and Dan would be like this. 
Did you see the elephant? Teresa asked. Yeah, Dan said, over behind those trees. Was the little one the baby with the mother? Yes, standing under the mother, he said. Is the baby still limping? Teresa asked. No, he looks fine. In fiction, this back and forth with no and yes sounds clunky. I'm not sure why it does. Here's the same conversation without the direct no and yes. Notice how the reader still learns the answer. This is a terrific dialogue technique. Did you see the elephant? Teresa asked. Dan said, over behind those trees. Was the little one the baby with the mother? Standing under the mother, he said. Is the baby still limping? Teresa asked. He looks fine, walking normally. If you do a global search for yes, no, maybe, certainly, sure, you can likely likely get rid of these direct responses. And the funny thing is, most of the time, you can th- these can be deleted, these direct answers, yes and no, without altering anything else on the page. You'll discover most of the time that the character answers the question even after the yes and no have been removed. Here's another technique, and I think it's a fun one. John and Marcia was a skit, a radio skit, by Stan Freeberg. He was a comedian who was popular in the 1950s. The skit made fun of soap operas, and the entire skit was two actors saying John and Marcia, expressing love for each other. John, Marcia, John. Marcia, <laughs> I can't make it sound funny, but it was. Sometimes we writers get carried away with names, and it begins to sound like a John and Marcia skit. Joe, I heard about your new car, buying it for Emma as a birthday surprise. It'll be a huge surprise, Max. It'll knock her out. Joe, what kind of car is it? It's a Tesla, Max. She wanted one for a long time. Make sure you charge it before you give it to her, Dan. Good idea, Max. (laughs) Isn't this artificial sounding? It's horrible. In real life, how often do we really refer to our spouse or family or friends by their names when addressing them less often than we think? Sometimes we writers make this mistake when we're trying to make our dialogue intense. Other times, it's because we fear the reader won't know who's speaking. Most of the time, though, use of a a character's name in address in dialogue makes the dialogue sound less real. Here's another technique. We should use mostly modern English. I received a great question from a listener, Ed. He asked, do readers of historical fiction prefer to read dialogue that exactly duplicates the vocabulary and cadence of the era, or or do they overlook some of that in favor of having a more understandable dialogue? I think dialogue that modern readers can easily read is the way to go. I've tried to read Chaucer's poetry written in about 1400, and I can't make out much. 
Uh, were I to write an historical novel set back then, I'd certainly make the dialogue suitable for modern ears. Our English language has had huge changes over the centuries. An example is the Great Vowel Shift. That was a series of changes in the pronunciation of English vowels that occurred between 1400 and 1700. It, it began in southern England and eventually changed all dialects, dialects of English. Same with other eras. I've been reading Tolstoy's War and Peace the novel is set in the early 1800s. It was written in Russian. Uh, the main characters are Russian, and they speak Russian and French, as speaking French was common in the, uh, among the nobility back then. The translators of the novel, from Russian to English, doesn't bother at all with trying to make the character sound as they might have 200 years ago. In the novel, they speak modern English. The reader doesn't have to think at all about it. The characters speak modern English, and that they do doesn't take away from their Russianness in the story. What we likely want to avoid in our novel that is set earlier in history is modern slang. At a restaurant set in 1900, say 1900, you wouldn't want a waiter in our in our novel, in our dialogue, saying in response to a thank you, no problem. The modern ubiquitous response to thank you, don't you dislike no problem? I sure do. We want to, re we want to respond, it's not a problem, it's your job. Uh, try your welcome or my pleasure. I don't think we want our, our dialogue to sound like the King James Bible, even if your novel were set in the time of King James. My thought is that you should have your character speak in a voice that readers won't think about. I just reread re James Michener's novel, The Source, which takes place in various times over the last 5,000 years, and all his characters sound like Americans speaking today. The reader doesn't even think about it, and it works really well. The reasons we want to avoid period dialogue, trying to sound like Henry VIII did, is that it's hard. Not only is it hard to find out exactly how people spoke back then, it's hard to be consistent, trying to represent it as we write. Uh, creating Henry's precise speech over a three- or four-hundred-page novel would be a lot of work for the writer, and also a lot of work for the reader, who tries to translate the earlier English to something understandable. If the writer writes in modern English, irrespective of the era in which the novel takes place, the reader won't notice the absence of anything. And if the reader gives it any thought, it'll be glad the author used modern English. Here's another good technique for writing dialogue. We should avoid summary conversation. A summary of a conversation is where the writer is telling the reader what was said, summarizing the conversation rather than letting the reader hear the conversation as the words are being spoken. Summary conversation isn't as interesting as real-time dialogue. This is a summary. Dan told her about his wound to his hand. 
and about the wretched rural hospital, and she sympathized with him. That's a summary. This is real-time dialogue. My finger was cut off, and I was sent to this awful rural hospital where nobody saw me for two hours. It sounds terrible, she said. That's more interesting than summary. Avoiding summary in our stories is a good technique everywhere, and it applies to dialogue. In a tense or dramatic situation involving conversation, real-time dialogue is much more interesting than a summary. Here's another good technique, a small technique, but it's good to think about. A sentence or paragraph of dialogue should begin at the heart of what is being conveyed rather than a, a preliminary throwaway phrase that lessens the impact of the dialogue. In real life, we all add these unnecessary preliminaries, but fictional dialogue should be more streamlined than real life. You know, that dog needs a bath. I was thinking that dog needs a bath. There's good reason for believing that that dog needs a bath. The, va the fact is, the dog needs a bath. These are all, these sentences uh, indicating the dog needs a bath were all preceded by a useless preliminary, preliminary phrase we don't need. We should cut them out. Here's another dialogue technique, a, a funny one. We should avoid dialogue prompts. Dialogue prompts are where one character makes a statement and the second character says something like, really? Or, go on or repeats part of the statement as, as a prompt for the first character to continue speaking. Uh, breaking up dialogue so that it isn't a chunk of text on the page is a good technique, but when dialogue prompts are used too often, it becomes transparent and irksome. And, and uh, dialogue prompts make dialogue sound contrived. Here's an example. A ship is sailing this way. I can see it. A ship? It's two-masted. It's got a blue hull, and I can already see the rat lines. What are rat lines? <laughs> These dialogue prompts here are a ship, and what are rat lines? We should just have the, the character continue speaking without the prompts. And here's the last technique. We should use the proper dialogue format uh, as we write dialogue. I once in a while read a novel where dialogue is presented in an odd way, including one of my favorite novels, The Commitments by Roddy Doyle, a wonderful novel and a wonderful movie too. Roddy Doyle presents dialogue this way, dash, not the factory I'm in, said Natalie, Dash, there isn't much rhythm in gutting fish, no beginning or uh, uh, in gutting fish. Uh, Roddy Doyle doesn't use uh, quotation marks, and it strikes me as odd. Reading the novel, I eventually got used to it, but it took me a while, uh, thinking all the while, where are the quotation marks? It makes me think of the format, not the story. Here's the way to format dialogue. Quote, where are we? Question mark, end quote, she asked, period. New paragraph. Quote, I'm not sure, comma, end quote, Dan replied, comma. Quote, but I think I see the house, period, end quote. 
paragraph. She asked, comma, quote, why aren't there lights on, question mark, end quote. That's it for formatting dialogue. So there are some smaller techniques for writing dialogue. Readers love dialogue, and these techniques will make our dialogue shine. I like learning how writers work. How does the best-selling author Jonathan Franzen work? He wrote The Connections. This is from Mason Curry's wonderful book, Daily Rituals. This is uh, Mason Curry on Jonathan Franzen. Shortly after graduating from college, Franzen married his girlfriend, also an aspiring novelist, and the pair settled down to work in classic starving artist fashion. They found an apartment outside Boston for $300 a month, stocked up on 10-pound bags of rice and enormous packages of frozen chicken, and allowed themselves to eat out only once a year on their anniversary. When their savings ran out, Franzen got a job, a weekend job as a research assistant at Harvard University's seismology department, which paid the bills for both of them. Five days a week, the couple wrote for eight hours a day, ate dinner, and then read for four or five more hours. Quote, I was frantically driven, Franzen said. I got up after breakfast, sat down at the desk, and worked till dark, basically. One of us would work in the dining room, and the kitchen was interposed, and then the bedroom was on the other side. It was workable for newlyweds. That's Jonathan Franson. Mason Curry goes on, it wasn't, workably, it wasn't workable forever. Eventually, the marriage dissolved in part due to the lopsidedness of their creative venture. As Franzen's first two books came out to positive reviews, his wife's first manuscript failed to find a publisher, and her second one stalled midway. Mason Curry continues, But Franzen's subsequent literary efforts didn't come any easier. To force himself to concentrate on his 2002 novel, The Corrections, he would seal himself in his Harlem studio with the blinds drawn and the lights off, sitting before the computer keyboard wearing earplugs, earmuffs, and a blindfold. It still took him four years and thousands of discarded pages to complete the book. Quote, I was in such a harmful pattern, he told a reporter afterward. In a way, it would begin on a Friday when I would realize what I'd been working on all week was bad. I would polish it all day to bring up the gloss until by four in the afternoon I'd have to admit it was bad. Between five and six, I'd get drunk on vodka, shot glasses, then have dinner, much too late, consumed with a sick sense of failure. I hated myself the entire time. That's from Mason Curry's book, Daily Rituals, about Jonathan Franzen. I have a better time writing than Jonathan Franzen ha had, and I hope you do too. My email address is jimfairseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, and I'm already looking forward to it, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.